0: Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. A former account supervisor for the city of Hamilton has been emailing uh, with critical questions about accounting methods and, and, well, frankly, spending and the way things have been going in the city. He's been doing this for years. This dates way back even when I was on city council 17, 18 years ago. He is now finding that his emails to councillors and staff are being blocked. Although city staff have a different word to describe exactly what's going on. Joining us to talk about this whole situation is Wade Pozyomko, who is a lawyer with Ross and McBride in town, who is also representing the aggrieved individual. Wade, thank you for the time. It's good to have you with us today.
1: Oh, thanks for having me, Bill. How would you
0: How'd you come across this whole idea?
1: Well, Shaker came in to, to see me and let me know that his uh, email communications were being blocked, so I asked to take a look at some of them, and really he's he's asking for clarification clarification of issues he's asking questions around budgeting the police services board budgeting all issues that affect taxpayer dollars and so after seeing the questions he's asking I mean he is perseverant but he's doing it um for a legitimate purpose I think he's doing it in good faith and he's trying to find answers to to issues that are happening at City Hall and then to see that his emails are blocked or I think the city uh, of Hamilton said that they're being vetted um, from my perspective is problematic
0: well, yeah, as I mentioned, I, I know Shaker and I know his reputation. Uh, he had just recently retired, I think, when I went on to Council in 1997. But he was he was a regular around City Hall, uh, talking to councillors, asking questions of staff, etc. Why, all of a sudden, is this guy uh, you know, being treated in the way he's being treated?
1: I think you have a, a change at City Hall with the City Manager. I know we have uh, Acting City Manager Mike Zegrek is in there in an interim role. Um, I don't know specifically why the change is there, but I have a feeling it has to do with a a change in leadership.
0: Because he's not doing anything, at least from what I can see here, he's not doing anything that he hasn't been doing for the last 15 or 16 years.
1: No, he's asking questions. He's holding people's feet to the fire, and sometimes he's right, sometimes he's wrong. He's looking for information. Um, But importantly, I think, you know, sometimes the questions that he asks benefit us all, right? They can save taxpayer dollars. They can find discrepancies and errors, and yeah, nothing's changed from my perspective from what I've been able to see. The only thing that's changed is, I guess, the city's stance, maybe policy at this point, of blocking uh, people who have critical questions.
0: Yeah, but that's part of the democratic process, isn't it, Wade?
1: Yeah, I think it is. I mean, uh, he has the right to gather information, as any taxpayer does, any citizen uh, in Hamilton. I think he uh, he's asking questions that many of us may not know to ask. Certainly, I don't know to ask. He's much... He's much uh, more familiar with numbers and and with the budgets and line items than I would be and I would assume most people. Um, So I think he's asking important questions. And I mean, I'm sure it's taking up city staff time. And uh, I'm sure they don't like to be criticized when he finds errors.
0: But well, yeah, I mean, nobody, nobody does.
1: Holding their feet to the fire, yeah.
0: yeah nobody does, but that kind of goes with the job if you're going to be an elected official or work for the city. Right? And he's also, I know, in, in the past, uh, been critical of some of the decisions made by the Police Services Board and some of their finances. So I mean, this is very much in keeping with what he's been doing. I, I got the quote uh, from Andrew Dreschel's column today, uh, Wade, uh, from Mr. Zagarek, Miz- uh, who, of course, as you mentioned, is the acting city manager. Uh, he says that uh, emails that are deemed inappropriate or harassing, by calling into question the staffer's professional responsibilities, are not delivered. Now, you've seen these emails. D- is that a description of of what Shaker's writing?
1: No, not from my perspective. I mean, I haven't seen. I'm sure I haven't seen every email that's gone over the years, but his, his emails are are questioning what exactly they're doing, and if he thinks there's something wrong, he points that out, and he always ends, it, it's always respectful. I mean, he's asking t- tough questions, but they're always respectful in nature. And so, I mean, when when uh, the acting city manager says, calling in to question staffers' professional responsibilities, well, isn't that our right as citizens? I mean, that's where I really have a problem. That seems anti-democratic to me.
0: Well, that's the co- the, the way it struck me, too, uh, because, like I say, we've seen this guy do this, and, yeah, it is, it's uncomfortable, I guess, for some staff, uh, but, I mean, these are the same sorts of questions that, that I would hear from, and I've, I've talked to Shaker a number of times when I was on city council, uh, and I, I can agree or disagree with him. I mean, that's my my right as a councillor, just as these guys have the right to, to do exactly the same thing. But he still has a right to be heard, and he still has a right to ask those questions. And these are probably, and you've seen many of the emails he sent, probably the same sorts of questions that that's, that councillors should be asking of staff during a budget process.
1: Right. No, I, I agree. And I think that, that Shaker has the... The expertise to maybe understand them a little bit better than some right but certainly counselors should be asking these questions but more importantly forget about the questions he's asking counselors should be saying to city staff if you're going behind our back and you're blocking citizens from asking these tough questions about things that you're doing because you don't want your feet held to the fire what does that mean about transparency and accountability in in the city of hamilton right this is a problem for counselors that goes far beyond shaker from my perspective
0: so i guess to try to get some resolution as i understand it uh, Shaker also uh tried to contact some counselors and even went up as far as the mayor's office. What kind of response did he get on that?
1: Um so I tried to count contact the mayor's oh, office okay. so I sent a letter on his behalf back in August to uh to the mayor and to council and haven't received a response to it. Um, I attribute some of that to the election, to the municipal election that happened and a change in, in leadership, but Still, it's been a few months at this point, and, and no response to someone when when you flag this for our elected official. So if they didn't know about it, they certainly knew about it when they received my letter in August, and to sit quietly and let this kind of behavior happen from city staff is inappropriate.
0: I wonder where, exactly, and I guess this is one of the things you're trying to ascertain, I would think, Wade, is exactly when this decision was made and by whom. Was it actually from the city manager's office?
1: It looks that way from the acting city manager's comments to Andrew Dreschel, but, I mean, to, to be honest, I don't even think he understands what happened because he says, "Well, the communications between Shaker and um, our elected representatives weren't blocked." And then, I of course have an email chain where Councillor Tom Jackson emailed Shaker saying, "There's an issue here. I can't get my email through to you. You might want to look into this." So clearly, I don't even think the city of Hamilton understands what they've done, and his communications with city councillors are blocked. So I, you know, I don't think they know what they're doing over there.
0: Is there a list? I mean, is Shaker one of many who are going through this right now? Is there, a, like, a bad guy list here that city keeps about people they really don't want to hear from?
1: Oh, God, I hope not, but I don't know.
0: <laughs> that's, uh, I, that's getting into the Nixon mindset, and I hope it's not going down that road. But, I mean, it is still, yeah. it's prohibitive, Wade, and, and, you know, I think every citizen should be concerned about this, whether you agree with what Shaker's asking or not.
1: Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, that's why I said this is beyond shaker. This is something that new council needs to pay attention to right away. Find out how how deep this goes. If there is a list, I mean, that's problematic, and we should know about it, and steps should be taken to correct it. You don't want city staff uh, taking these kind of actions.
0: And and look, there's a way to do this, and and I'm sure that's the conversation at some point we're going to have to have with uh, the people that made this decision. Is at some point, if somebody is relentless and you've already answered the question, you can simply reply reply by saying, "Look at that you asked and answered, I already gave you the reply, and you know you can either accept it or not, but to simply ignore somebody is is, is really shirking your responsibility, I would think
1: sure I mean, and if it becomes too persistent or the same question is constantly being asked, maybe you don't respond to that specific email or that specific question because you already have, and that's the message you send, but to to block them or to vet them, so the emails aren't even coming through to people that they're supposed to be coming through to is a different a different ballgame.
0: Now, is there a possibility of, of, of you pursuing this from a legal standpoint? I mean it sounds to me as if this is somebody who's whose right to speak out and that right to ask questions of elected officials is being curtailed.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's curtailed only in the sense that emails are blocked, so he still has access to information coming from the city of Hamilton. He doesn't have the same ease of access as suppose, to clarification, but he can file freedom of information requests and do other things. So from a legal perspective, it's probably not a violation of the Charter. Um, or something that's illegal, but it certainly is anti-democratic, and I appreciate the interest that, that's been drummed up around this because I think it's something that we all need to, to remember on election day. If city council doesn't intervene in this situation and they they continue to block city or citizens' emails,
0: well, because again, it, and I'm looking at the elected officials, I, whoever made this decision, I, I you know we may never find out exactly who it was, but the city councilors now that they're aware of this, and, and as you said, Boyd, some of them were aware of this before the election. Uh, have done nothing about it or said nothing about it, and and that's somewhat problematic. I mean, there's always going to be a bunch of people that are you know political hang-ons that just always want to be in there and ask questions, and you tend to see a lot of them time and time again, whatever the issue is. But again, that's it's part of the job, and you're supposed to be there, and you and you're supposed to respond to those people in whatever fashion you you're allowed to, of course, but according to your job function. But I'm I'm really wondering now if, if you know to use Mister Zegarek's quote here. That these are being vetted—that's uh, a nice bit of wordsmithing, I guess. Uh, you know, and I'm wondering exactly what part of this is inappropriate and what part of this is harassing.
1: Yeah, I mean, I would be interested. I, I think that's something for for the acting city manager to to explain to the public and to city councilors. Hopefully, I'm, I'm hoping at this point now that it's come into the, the media spotlight that city councillors will turn their eye to this and ask these questions of the acting city manager and perhaps take some action if they deem it to be inappropriate, something that never should have happened.
0: What's uh, What does Shaker want to see at the end of the game here? Does he just simply just want to be able to do what he's always been doing for the last 17, 18 years? Or is he looking for something else from council here?
1: No, I think I, I, I think from his perspective he just wants answers to questions that he has. I mean, he's he doesn't strike me as a vindictive man in any any sense of the word. I think he's um certainly persistent and I think he certainly cares. Um and I think he sees himself a bit of as a bit of a crusader for the taxpayer for said people in Hamilton that he has some information and he can use his knowledge to to bring issues to light so I think he just wants information he just wants clarification I don't think he's looking for any sort of recourse at this point
0: well cuz I've never seen him nor have I ever heard him uh, do anything that was uh, in any way intimidating and you know I I've never known him to be a one who calls people names or, or you know makes inferences like this what his methodology was from what I recall was he would get staff reports and go over them and analyze them and then come back with a series of questions. And, and like I said, it's really the counselor's job to do that. But, I mean, every citizen has that same right to do that as well. That's why these things are made public.
1: Yeah, and I think, I, think, I mean, some councillors do that and some don't, right? Some well, do yeah. <laughs> so... I mean, I appreciate that he does it. I I wish I had the time and the the expertise or the knowledge to do it. I I certainly don't, so it's not something that I could do. But I think people like Shaker are important, who bring these issues forward, who do understand it, and who point out to the rest of us there might be a problem here.
0: I would like to think that uh, that with the the piece that Andrew wrote and uh, with your work on this, that, uh, that somebody at City Hall is going to respond to this now.
1: I hope so. I'm going to do what I can to continue to uh, get an answer to this because, like I said, it isn't about the questions that he's asking; it's about his right to ask those questions, and uh, and, and you know a practice that I see is largely anti-democratic.
0: Wade, thanks as always for the time. I really appreciate it, and uh, continued good luck with this. Uh, hopefully, we can get this resolved and, uh, in due course and uh, and get things back in in the order in which they should be. Appreciate the time today.
1: Thanks for having me, Bill. Take care. Take
0: care, care. Wade Bosiomka, of course, lawyer with Ross McBride. Uh, and, and like I say, this is the thing I found frustrating when I heard about this. And there's always, as, as I mentioned to Wade, there's always going to be some people that call constantly, call city councilors, call city staff. And it can be a little redundant, and sometimes it can be irritating. I get that. I went through that. As, a, I, I can still think as we're talking about this, and names of two or three people that are like that. But that's the process. That's what you're supposed to do as an elected official. And that's what you're supposed to do as a city staffer. And I know it takes time to respond to these questions, but that's that goes with the job. That's the territory, and you can say quite nicely, "Look, it, I know I what you're asking. I I answered that for you. You may not like the answer, but that's the answer." And if they become persistent, you can always just respond by email and say, "Asked and answered." Okay, but to simply ignore it, we got a problem there. And again, you it begs the question: Is is he the only one where this is happening? To whom which this is happening rather, or are there others? that are going through a similar experience. I'm sure if there are, we'll probably hear from them in the next little while.
1: You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML.
0: The uh, topic of my uh, blog and my uh, commentary earlier this morning uh, had to do with uh, former Governor General Adrian Clarkson with the revelation, of course, last week about uh, some rather uh, extravagant expenses uh, that she has actually remitted from the, uh, the federal government. She's been out of office for some time now. And there was justifiable outrage when we learned about the extravagant expense accounted submissions by the former G.G. Uh, she, of course, uh, tried to justify that with an op-ed piece that was published in the Globe and Mail last week in which she defended her actions, essentially saying that we shouldn't really be condemning her because she's really just doing what everybody else does. Not quite sure how that makes it right. Uh, but if that defense sounds familiar, because well, it's, it's it's been used before. That's essentially what Mike Duffy said during the US Senate expense trial. And if you recall, it worked because the charges against him were tossed out. But we got a problem here, clearly, and uh, nobody seems to want to talk about this in Ottawa, at least nobody who can do anything about it. So maybe we should get the discussion going here. To that end, we're pleased to welcome to the program Duff Coniger, co-founder of Democracy Watch and, uh, of course, adjunct professor at the University of Ottawa. Duff, thank you so much for the time. It's good to have you with us again.
2: My pleasure, Bill.
0: This shouldn't really surprise us when we heard these numbers, should it? No.
2: No. Essentially, um, it's a totally unaccountable system now in terms of details of the spending. And uh, like every, like all spending um, of uh, anyone with, in government or connected to the government, uh, even when they leave, it should be uh, fully disclosed and audited by the Auditor General regularly. That's I, the way I, to stop abuse.
0: I, I would imagine most Canadians, if you were to stop somebody... Uh, you know, right now, and five people downtown Hamilton or downtown Ottawa, and said, did you know that the Governor-General continues to be paid after they leave office? I'd I'd say most Canadians probably are not even aware of this.
2: No, I wouldn't think so, Um, again, because there's little disclosure of of the details of this going on until now. And, uh, of course, it raises questions about uh, what this position is and and what it means after you leave and whether there should be... um, anything provided other than a uh, usual kind of pension that would be provided for uh, any federal government job.
0: Yeah, they call it a stipend. I don't know what kind of uh, wordsmithing they use here, but I think she gets about two hundred grand a year, doesn't she?
2: Um, essentially, uh, what happens is they they get uh, expenses covered for an office and an assistant. And uh, the question is, um, and she wrote an op-ed piece in the Globe and Mail, you might have seen on the weekend. Yeah, yeah. And she said she listed and said uh, she's done a, a whole bunch of events um, and said that uh, for some of them, she, uh, she's listed a number, that she did not uh, get paid any speaker's fee. But it wasn't clear from the way she worded it whether she wasn't paid a speaker's fee for any of them. And if she was paid as well as having these expenses covered, then essentially she would be double dipping. So it was very unclear, it was very carefully worded um, to make it seem like she speaks for free always, but that's not exactly what it said, it actually said she only spoke for free at those particular events.
0: As, as I was reading that, I was going to ask you the same thing, Duff, did you get a sense of deja vu that didn't we hear this argument a few years ago?
2: Yes, and uh, with regard to Mike Duffy. Yeah, about. yeah. Yeah, and in that case it was actually, while well, he was still sitting as a senator, uh, and Lots of people don't know this. The rules haven't changed for senators. They're still allowed to claim parliamentary business and uh and senate business as an expense, and that is not well defined at all. Uh and it was amazing that Mike Duffy got away with the one charge that he claimed where it was for his uh his physio uh physical trainer uh who was supposedly also advising him even though he produced no written reports at all and the advice was supposedly coming well Senator Duffy was working out. So I was quite amazed that the judge let him off on that one because presumably, if he was an advisor, you'd have some evidence that he'd actually ever given advice. Um, And it was not a huge sum of money, it was $8,000 over a year, but still, you know. Someone well, there's can claim eight thousand dollars and get away with it. Then that encourages them to claim eighty thousand
0: dollars. Yeah, exactly. Well, there's another shoe to drop in, in the Duffy situation. I've had some correspondence back and forth with Mike over the last little while, and uh, this still a consideration, I think, for a lawsuit there. And I'm, I'm not sure where that's going to go. Oh but no, it,
2: it's well, they've already filed it. Yeah, and, and the Senate is defending it. Uh, I'm surprised the Senate hasn't settled. Um, because I think uh, Duffy's going to win. The Senate violated his rights. They they held a secret behind closed doors hearing without notice to him, didn't give him a chance to present his evidence, and found him guilty. You can't do that. Not even the Senate's allowed to do that, even though it runs its own affairs uh, under the Constitution. And uh, I'm surprised the Senate's taking the chance of losing that case, although I, I hope they do go ahead and lose it, because then we'll finally get some uh, fair and proper enforcement of rules in the Senate.
0: Well, I guess the broader question at this point, Duff, is what are the rules? Are there any? Because they keep see they keep talking about this as if we're policing ourselves, and we'll look after this. But with this case with the, the former Governor General, and even the Senate case, he essentially says, that look at, and I think the judge said that in the case, uh, he didn't break any rules because I don't see any rules here. There are guidelines, but they're not rules.
2: That's right. And they're self-enforced. Yeah. Um, and uh, so, you know, essentially the judge concluded, well, the Senate could find him guilty. And he wasn't actually challenging the, the Senate's process in that case because it, he was charged. It was a criminal case. Um, the judge said, well, the Senate can find Senator Duffy guilty of breaking the rules, vague as they are, but that doesn't mean he's guilty of committing a crime. And yeah, that's, you know, politicians write the rules for themselves. And. Uh, they write weak rules and set up weak enforcement systems, uh, enforcement systems that essentially work both in the House and the Senate in favor of the ruling party because they hold a majority on, on the committee and that makes decisions as to some, whether someone's violated the rules. So it becomes an arbitrary system, a, a kangaroo court by definition, that makes decisions based on politics, not based on the evidence and the rules. And if they don't like you, they'll find you guilty. And if they like you, they'll let they'll cover up your wrongdoing. That's the whole history that's gone on. And, and both maybe in the House and the Senate, and with the Governor General, the spotlight hasn't been shone on it until now and and hopefully now it will be cleaned up
0: and And we direct our anger, of course, at at well, people like Mike Duffy or Pamela wallen and, and now Adrian Clarkson. Uh, and I, I can I can understand why people are going to have that kind of a reaction. but isn't the real problem here the quote unquote system? Uh, well, yeah. The people that make those rules or try to enforce them and, and basically turn their back when they see somebody who's flaunting them?
2: Yeah, it's, it's been Democracy Watch's slogan for now uh, more than 20 years. It's, the system is the scandal. It encourages and allows dishonest, unethical, secretive, unrepresentative, and wasteful behavior. And they're all to blame. You know, MPs have circled the wagons, too, oh, on, sure. on letting the Auditor General in and uh, letting the Auditor General uh, actually audit MP's expenses. Uh, The NDP has recently broken with that uh, consensus and said, we're fine with the Auditor General coming in. Uh, But up until recently, they were all saying, no, no, we run our own affairs and we have this committee. uh, And uh, the Board of Internal Economy, it's called for the House, has a similar name in the Senate. And we run our own affairs. Uh, That's not the way to run things. It's Politicians can't be judging each other. By definition, they'll make decisions based on the politics of a situation as opposed to the evidence of whether the rules have been broken or not.
0: Well, and when they do release information, which is not that often, it's in a very vague uh, manner. I mean, you know, even when they come, for instance, to MPs' expenses, you know, they they give you large numbers and say, "Well, here's how much we were allowed to spend, and here's how much we did spend." But they don't really be, uh, be you know drill down and say, "Okay, well, how much did that guy or, or that lady spend?" And you don't get those numbers. They say, "Oh, no, no, we'll look after that. We'll look after that." And and our, I guess our job as as taxpayers is just trust them.
2: That's their message. Yes, and uh, unfortunately we haven't had a party in power that's willing to change those rules. And the NDP said they'll let the Auditor General in if they ever won an election or, or if there's a minority government next time. Hopefully they'll push on that and make it part of their deal for supporting whichever party wins uh, the most seats. And, and uh, we'll see. But it's it's slow going because they write the rules for themselves. And, and, uh, and we just have to keep chipping away. So the governor general is in a much more vulnerable position there's no real incentive for any politician to be fe- to be defending the the current spending system so hopefully it will change and you know the governor general some have said well the governor general remains the governor general forever well that doesn't necessarily have to be true um they've finished their position as governor general and and uh, they may, because of the profile they had as Governor General, get a bunch of invitations. Well, there's no reason why the system can't be that they can tell all those people, yeah, I'll come uh, for free or to be paid. It's you know, I'll choose which ones I want to ask a fee from and which ones I want to do for free, but otherwise not receive uh, ongoing public support.
0: Well, and that's the thing that I was scratching my head about when I read her op-ed piece in the Globe and Mail over the weekend, She says, I've done a number of functions, and you're right, she listed a number of them there uh, that I attended. Uh, Well, is she representing the Canadian government, or is she representing the Queen when she does that? Because memory serves me, uh, Doug. We're paying somebody else to do that now, aren't we?
2: Yeah, I don't see anything in the Constitution, and I'm teaching a political science course at the University of Ottawa this year uh, on the Constitution of Canada. uh, And uh, I don't see anything in the Constitution that says the Governor-General remains the Governor-General forever. I mean, they they uh, may keep the title honorary, uh, like former prime ministers do. Sure, um, but uh, that doesn't mean they retain the position and the perks of the position. And again, I don't see any problem with just having them decide. They, she said she got uh, hundreds of invitations. Okay, well, with the ones that can afford to pay you to come and speak, ask them to pay you, and the the ones that can't do it for free. Uh, there's no particular reason why the public has to provide uh, an assistant in an office to, to the Governor-General forever.
0: Well, and, and that's that's the thing I'm looking at, too. I mean, you know, when she goes and does these so these functions or these appearances, I mean, Julie Payette is the Governor-General. She's the re- Queen's representative here, not Adrian Clarkson anymore. Yeah. So, I mean, that's double dipping. We're paying two people to do the same thing? That seems ridiculous. And staffing it at the same time. It reminds me of... Uh, was it Francis Fox, was it, the, the former cabinet minister, when he was appearing before the committee some years ago? I, I'm entitled to my entitlements.
2: Uh, David Dingwall.
0: David Dingwall, that's right. Yeah. Yes, indeed. And that's still the mindset of an Ottawa, apparently.
2: Very much so. Very much so. They, uh, on, on every issue of honesty, ethics, transparency, being representative, uh, and uh, waste prevention, the politicians generally... Are circling the wagons and protecting themselves uh, across the board. They, you know they'll beat up on each other. They'll play gotcha politics with scandals. Oh, and every but, now and then
0: they throw one of them uh, under the bus, and you know, and that it seems. Te- I guess it pacifies us for a while.
2: Yes, uh, but in terms of changing the system, so that you can't uh, be dishonest, unethical, secretive, unrepresentative, or wasteful, and if you are, you'll be caught and penalized to the same extent that other Canadians in their jobs are penalized when they they act in any of those ways. No, none of the rules are there, none of the enforcement systems are there, none of the penalties are there, and no party is taking this seriously um, still. Um, Despite the fact that if one party would take this seriously, I'm sure they would win more votes in the next election because these are hot-button issues with all voters across the spectrum. And, you know, every party that has promised to clean things up, including the Liberals in 2015, has won more seats or won the election since 1993, when Krecian was the first one to lay a, a platform for governing with integrity. You know, in fact, Krecian in that that famous red book uh, that Paul Martin and uh, put together and yeah. the Liberals, they said uh, the government cannot do good in society unless it has integrity. And here we are now, 25 years later. Democracy Watch has been working since '93. This is our 25th year. And apparently government can't, can't do any good in society because government still does not have integrity.
0: So what do we have to do as citizens, or what can we do? I mean, for us to just sit and Send hope. Send those that,
2: letters. They, yeah. if, they, if an MP uh, has only won um, by a couple thousand votes and they receive 3,000 letters, they're very nervous. They don't know, especially if your letter always has to say at the end of it, I'm determining my vote in the next election by how you act on this. And that throws them off. And that's the best we can do. The more letters they receive, the more nervous they get. The liberals should be walking on eggshells. They had a miracle majority last time. They won the highest percentage of seats since Confederation with the lowest percentage of votes. And so they're so close to minority government next time around. uh, They should be walking on eggshells. And instead they're pretending like they want a sweeping majority and there's no way they can lose the next election. This is the issue is a hot button issue, and if uh, the the conservatives have a bit of difficulty, uh, although they have a new leader coming out and saying we'll we'll clean things up because Harper promised it and didn't do it, if the NDP promises it as a major plank in their platform, they will take away votes from the the Liberals because, as I said, every party that has made this a serious part of their platform since 1993, across the ca- country, not just at the federal level in all the provinces as well, has either won more seats or won the election. So it, people want things cleaned up. Swing voters are the ones that determine elections. And swing voters want things cleaned up more than anybody because they realize that government actually can't do good until it's required to be good. And, uh, and so they want these changes, and they will swing to a party who, who promises them. Uh, unfortunately, because of Chrétien's broken promises and Paul Martin's and Harper's and several at the provincial level, you, an ironclad promise to clean things up won't do it. You need a titanium-clad promise now because people won't believe an ironclad promise. They've seen those kind of promises broken too many times.
0: Well, and uh, because of the skepticism and, as you mentioned, the yeah. track record. I mean, the, uh, the back end of what you're suggesting here is accountability, is to hold them to, you know, accountable if they don't do it. Yeah, I mean that's, we're, we're, why,
2: we're, that's why I think uh, any politician promising this... that wants to be taken seriously, has to promise an honesty in politics law, has to promise to resign if they, won't, if they don't keep their promises, and including being subjected to an independent audit as to whether they have c- kept their promises. If any of the politicians did that, and they should, because that would get 20 million voters' attention at the federal level or in any pro- provincial election, that would wake up the, the voters and say, wow, someone who's actually different, promising to penalize themselves with an independent audit determining whether they've kept their promises, that would change politics forever in Canada. And that party would definitely win more of the vote because people would swing to them, finally uh, someone who's taking seriously, cleaning things up. And the fact that none of them do it, when they all want to win, but they're still not willing to promise the things that would actually shift 20 million voters in their direction, it just shows you how the system really is corrupt, how, how the power they have corrupts them enough to all circle the wagons to keep the current system in place in which they can get away with dishonest, unethical, secretive, unrepresentative, and wasteful behavior.
0: Well, and and again, you know, the the problem is, is they make these promises, and then, you know, they get reelected, and they go behind closed doors. Well, electoral reform, I mean, this election was supposed to be fought on something other than first-past-the-post, but here we are again. That was a promise that was made, and I really got the impression, forgive my skepticism, Duff, when that committee was finally struck and they went behind closed doors, they just said, okay, let's not get stupid here, okay? You know, this is what got us here. Let's just keep this the way it is. And they're doing the same thing when it comes to, to financial reforms. Well, it
2: wasn't it wasn't the committee, though. The committee actually did recommend a compromise. The Conservatives didn't want to change the system, so they yeah. said, okay, change the system only after a referendum. It was Prime Minister Trudeau that broke his promise, and Democracy Watch filed a complaint with the Commissioner of Canada Elections. There is a rule in the Elections Act that says... You can't, it's a rather obscure wording, with any pretense or contrivance, you cannot uh, try to induce a voter to vote for you. And unfortunately, the commissioner of Canada Elections said, well, that doesn't mean a false promise. But if you look up the word pretense or contrivance in the dictionary, they both say false claim. Well, Trudeau made a false claim. Unfortunately, you can't challenge that decision by the commissioner in, cor- in court because the commissioner has discretion whether to prosecute or not. Uh, We're still pursuing it, though, because DeMarziewicz can do a private prosecution on that, only with the permission of another person, the director of public prosecutions, who the liberals just appointed the person. So we're not expecting to get through to be able to do that private prosecution. But the law is there. It needs to be clarified. And Bill C-76 just went through the House. And none of the parties proposed making that rule clear, more clear and stronger so that they can be held accountable for false statements and false promises during elections. So, again, that just shows you how they circle the wagons on these things. You know, the NDP very much criticized the Liberals uh, and Trudeau for breaking the electoral reform promise, but uh, they didn't do anything with Bill C-76 to try and strengthen that rule.
0: Well, uh, thank heavens uh, you guys at Democracy Watch are holding their feet to the fire and shining the light on some of this stuff, and hopefully it will be part of the, uh, the dialogue as we go forward towards next year's election. Duff, as always, thanks so much for the time today. Really appreciate it.
2: Thanks very much for your interest.
0: Take care. Duff Conigure, of course, co-founder of Democracy Watch.
1: You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. There
0: is a symposium on homelessness going on in downtown Hamilton at the convention center, and uh, one of the uh, speakers attending, of course, is the federal minister. Uh, families, children, and social development. Jean-Yves Duclos is the uh, minister, of course, and he is in town, and he joins us here on the Bill Keller Show to talk about the uh, federal government's uh, commitment to to, uh, dealing with the homelessness issue. Mr. Minister, thank you so much for the time. It's great to have you with us today.
3: Good morning, Bill, and good morning to everyone listening.
0: Well, listen, let's talk a little bit about why you were in town, Mr. Minister. Uh, obviously, this is an issue that uh, I think touches just about every community in the country, and I know that uh, the Prime Minister uh, has made a commitment to uh, to dealing with this. Talk to us about this program that you've developed.
3: Well, two great news. Uh, first, we, Hamilton is uh, is a very good place to have this conference because Hamilton is uh, it's a community that has demonstrated in the, in the past that uh, it can work towards uh, reducing and uh, and ending homelessness, uh, helping uh, marginalised youth, m- helping women living in, in conditions of domestic violence. Now, making sure that in Canada in 2018, uh, homelessness becomes uh, history. It's unacceptable in such a rich country to have people living on the streets. And the second reason that we the second great news is that the Canadian government is uh, is renewing its leadership and, and partnership in supporting communities like Hamilton. Now we've got uh, uh, significantly enhanced resources for the next few years, and we're working going to work more respectfully with communities to give them more power, more tools to help them that really need their, their support.
0: Well, it's a big number. Uh, the, the one that I'm looking at here, Mr. Minister, is $2.2 billion over 10 years to tackle homelessness. Uh, the program is called Reaching Home. Uh, Canada's homelessness strategy, Uh, how do you allocate that? How do you determine where that money is going to go and how best to spend it?
3: That's exactly true. It's a $2.2 billion. We're essentially doubling uh, resources to uh, fight homelessness because, Bill, no, we need to say it openly. uh, Homelessness has become more prevalent. It has uh, become... Uh, more difficult to find uh, affordable and safe homes in many communities, including in Hamilton, that has led to more people uh, sleeping and living on the streets. Now, as I said earlier, uh, communities like Hamilton have, been, have shown the path ahead, but what will happen now is that uh, communities that have been leaders like Hamilton will continue to receive funding and increased funding, but we're also, open, we're also going to open... Uh, the possibility for other communities across canada to receive this federal support over the next years
0: this is a a, a monumental problem and i know we're even understating that uh, i know one of the statistics i saw uh, when i knew you were going to be in town here was of course about people that are homeless in, in in shelters and we don't have enough shelters and enough beds in shelters but uh, in 2016 it was estimated 133,000 people experienced homelessness at a shelter but that doesn't even begin uh, to talk about the real number, does it, Mr. Minister? Because there's people that are couch surfing, going from you know one house to another, uh, and those are only people that end up in shelters. And as you say, there's some people on the street. Uh, it's it's a monumental problem, and obviously something has to be done about this. And uh, the the amount of money that you've talked about here, doubling it, of course, over this uh, this period of time, uh, is is actually, I think, a significant approach to this.
3: Well, you're you're correct. Number you quoted uh, the the one hundred and thirty three thousand. That's visible uh, homelessness. So uh, as you said, it's people we find in shelters. There's a lot of invisible homelessness, and particularly for marginalized young Canadians now who don't like to go to shelters because they don't find themselves uh, comfortable uh, with, uh, with, the, with others that uh, use shelters. It's also true for, for women uh, uh, that, uh, that are living in, uh, in conditions of domestic violence. In many cases, those women will will sacrifice their uh, physical and, and mental health and safety and live in invisible forms of homelessness at severe cost to their, as I said, mental and physical health. So we want to address the entire uh, spectrum of conditions in which Canadians find themselves homelessness, and that requires a combination of providing a home, a, a roof, but also services, because in many cases, uh, or in most, almost all cases, uh, those who find themselves homelessness, homeless they find themselves homeless because of other reasons, you no know, mental health, just a lack of affordability. They just might have a, 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 a work shock, you no know, family shock, you no know, divorce, or something you know, traumatic uh, happened to their health. So we need to provide a range of services and support so that they can relaunch their lives.
0: And, and that was missing in the past, Mr. Minister. I'm, I'm sure you knew that, uh, that, that, you know, the extraneous factors that may have contributed to this were not really addressed, and, and that's why an awful lot of people would just fall back into the cycle.
3: Exactly that. Precisely. So we want to uh, reduce homelessness, but if you want to do that effectively, we need to prevent homelessness from happening, and we need to make sure that once people have experienced homelessness and are back uh, with the support uh, for uh, to a new life, then they don't re-enter again the cycle of homelessness.
0: How, this it's a lofty goal to try to do this, and I mean I'm, uh, the the ultimate goal that I think we'd all love to see uh, attained here is is to re- eliminate it, eradicate homelessness altogether. But are there going to be benchmarks? Have you established benchmarks, Mister Minister, along the way here to track how what successful the program is?
3: N- yes, there's a national benchmark. We need to reduce uh, chronic homelessness by at least fifty percent over the next years. We know we can do better than that because we have organizations like uh, those that we find in Hamilton that know that they can do even better than reducing uh, homelessness by 50 percent so it's a national objective but then to achieve this objective uh, as quickly as we can we need local leadership and uh, local leadership is there because we have uh, all sorts of great community organizations with expertise experience and and great goodwill and but but for that to be effective we need to give uh, powers, power to the communities. So that's why the new Reaching Home Program is a community-first program. It, it, it gives you know, uh, the communities more information uh, for them to share. It gives them the ability to share services. So when, for instance, someone finds home himself or herself homeless in Hamilton, now when he or she goes to a particular uh, shelter, now for that shelter to be able to greet that person, regardless of the type of uh, of services that he or she needs, and then for that person to transition to other places, if necessary, is something very important. So making the community work increasingly better together. And finally, to share the successes at the community level. So we'll ask communities every year to publish a report, to organize an event at which they will be able to share the progress that they are make, that they're making to make uh, more Hamiltonians and more Canadians live in a safe and affordable place.
0: So you're you're looking at each municipality then to decide to develop their own strategies here, and you'll you'll be the funding source and the partner in that. Then is that is that correct?
3: Uh, yes, that's exactly correct. Our communities like Hamilton will develop their strategy. They will, they will they will announce it publicly. They'll say this is what how we will work together. How we'll share information. How we'll share services, and and regularly we'll provide reports on the progress we're making.
0: The numbers here that we've talked about on the program, and I know you're aware of this, uh, Mr. Minister, and I know you met a lot of the, uh, the local partners at the uh, the function down at the Convention Center today, but on average here in Hamilton, it's about a seven, seven and a half year wait for affordable housing, people that are registered to to be included in the program. Uh, but you also know that the, the, the wait time, for instance, uh, in in, the, in aboriginal situations, for instance, at Six Nations, uh, just south of Hamilton here, is almost double that, uh, almost 15 or 16 years. Uh, talk to us about how you're dealing with the aboriginal homelessness
3: problem. Well, indigenous homelessness is eight times as important as homelessness for Canadians. This is, is unacceptable. Of course, it's a product of uh, the effects of colonialism and the effects that Too many of our indigenous families and and communities have have lost uh, hope uh, in their future at some point in their history. That is changing, however, fortunately, because we are working differently with uh, indigenous peoples. We're giving them uh, more resources, but more importantly, we're giving them more power uh, to uh, help their people, their families, their children. So it's true across Canada. It's also true in the Hamilton area. Uh, It's always true, for instance, when it comes to... uh, health uh, services, training, early learning and child care, housing, and it's also going to be true now for how we are going to fight together homelessness, uh, especially homelessness affecting indigenous Canadians. And again, I know and I hear that we're, be, we're going to be able to count on the leadership of people in the Hamilton area to do that, and that leadership will, um, I'm quite certain, will influence uh, the ability of other communities in Canada to do to do better,
0: uh, because it it becomes a vicious cycle, doesn't it, Minister? That uh, you know, if, if they can't get housing, or can't get affordable housing, for instance, uh, in in their land, they come to the cities to Hamiltons, to Torontos, to to Calgarys, wherever it might be, which only exacerbates that urban uh, problem with the, with ha- uh, the, the homelessness problem. And and obviously, you're, you're looking at both elements of this here to try to lower those numbers.
3: That's true. That's true. Now that's. Uh, that's a very complex uh, issue, and it requires, because of its, it's complex work, without the collaboration of many many uh, organizations. So you, you're right. You know, when uh, indigenous youth uh, you know, find that they have little hope of making progress of living up to their potential in their, in their communities, they will sometimes move to urban centers and then find themselves uh, away from their cultural roots away from their friends, away from their family, and you now find it sometimes difficult to, uh, you know, to, to integrate and to be well. And then they find themselves in difficult circumstances, and eventually they might end up being homeless. Now, for that, uh, to, uh, for that to change, we need collaboration between, of course, First Nations, Métis, and Inuit, because they're, you know, all three groups of indigenous peoples are represented when it comes to indigenous homelessness in cities. But then collaboration with those that uh, those are Indigenous organizations that work in urban context, now to support Indigenous Canadians. And we call that the urban Indigenous uh, community. Now, because there are increasingly strong uh, urban Indigenous organizations in large centers across Canada, in Ontario in particular, that are very able and very willing to, uh, to collaborate with cities and municipalities and provi- uh, providers of uh, sorts of services to help Uh, those indigenous Canadians that are moving from reserves and from remote communities to urban cities in Canada.
0: Is the money that uh, the government's going to be allocating here, Minister, is this for new builds alone or is it also going to be to retrofit some of the existing because I know in Hamilton we have a problem here with the existing stock that is quite frankly inhabitable right now because of the the work that needs to be done on them. Is is part of this funding going to address that problem too?
3: Well, two very important things on that. First, the, uh, the $2.2 billion uh, will, be, will be invested in the next few years. That's going to be used flexibly by communities like Hamilton. So they will be able to uh, decide w- w- whether some of that will be better uh, used for you know, renewing, renovating, constructing uh, new shelters, new transitional homes. It will also be possible for them to use those dollars to provide services to uh, Mental health and, and, and physical health services to women and, and youth, for, for, for instance. Now, that's combined to another uh, very big investment of the federal government. It's called the National Housing Strategy. It's a $40 billion uh, strategy over the next years. That is going to build and to renovate more community homes, more public uh, units, housing units in Hamilton and across uh, Ontario and Canada for too, too many years. The federal government pretended that uh, to uh, renovate and construct new affordable and community homes was a problem of uh, cities like toronto hamilton and toronto and then the problem of provinces now that is now stopping the federal government announced in november 2017 that it is back as a leader and a partner with the the first ever national housing strategy the 40 billion dollar housing strategy that's going to help hamilton in other cities in Ontario, as you said, look after the existing affordable housing stock and provide more of that uh, affordable housing stock. Because our cities, in particular, are growing cities, very vibrant uh, with the, lots of diversity and, and middle-class families uh, striving to make ends meet. That that requires investments in affordable housing, in part, as you know, and as you said, to avoid homelessness.
0: Uh, good news. Uh, we've been talking at great length. As you know, we just had our municipal elections here in Ontario, and uh, I know this was a major issue that got an awful lot of discussion uh, during that election campaign, and this is going to be welcome news for the folks down at City Hall. Mr. Minister, thank you so much for uh, spending some time with us today. It's greatly appreciated.
3: Thank you, Bill, for your warm welcome, and looking forward to talk to, to you more, uh, more often in the future.
0: We hope to do that. just that. Thanks again, Mr. Minister. Okay, bye. Bye Bye-bye now. That's uh, Jean-Yves Duclos, Minister of Families, Children, and Social Development with a big whack of money from the federal government. We'll just see how much of it actually uh, flows into Hamilton right now. But the fact that he made the announcement here is certainly good news. Now we just have to get the province on board with a housing strategy. Uh, We'll see how that one develops uh, once they present their mini budget, which we're told is going to be in just a couple of weeks.
2: The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900
0: CHML.